Are you passionate about health and nutrition? Then check out the Nutrition Academy. They offer the most comprehensive, innovative, and transparent health and nutrition educational resource on the planet. They strive to separate health misinformation from reality. They give their students the resources and skill sets to think critically about what they read and learn. So you can use the power of research to make better decisions for yourself, your family, and the people you serve. The Nutrition Academy have kindly offered all listeners a discount for this course. So you are able to try it out for yourself with a saving of $50. Just use the code TNN50 at thenutrition.academy or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini, and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness, and optimizing your health, metabolism, and longevity. While you're tuning into today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In episode 279 of The Real Food Real, we are joined by Cliff Harvey to explore the publication Caloric Restriction Alters Lipid Metabolism to Contribute to Tumor Growth Inhibition. We discuss how caloric restriction differs from a ketogenic diet in regards to cancer treatment and how we must consider both the Warburg effect and the reverse hypothesis that while some cancer cells thrive on glucose, others thrive on ketone bodies. We then discuss glutamine and the relevance of protein intake versus the prevention of muscle wastage, the role of a holistic and individualized approach to cancer treatment, future directions, including the press pulse strategy, and so much more. Hi, Cliff, and welcome back to the show. Thanks, Steph. Good to be back. Yeah, we had a really interesting conversation last time about some of the more recent research around keto and and low-carbohydrate protocols. Certainly today's conversation has um, a slightly different angle. I really wanted to talk to you about the article titled titled Caloric Restriction Alters Lipid Metabolism to Contribute to Tumor Growth Inhibition. So let's start with, yeah, your thoughts around this research. Yeah, I I think it's really important research. We obviously need to keep delving into the effects of not just the ketogenic diet, but, you know, any type of diet on on cancer, um, cancer expression, tumor growth, all those various aspects, because at the moment, there's not a lot of clarity around which diet works best for cancer. And there's a lot of people who say that, you know, diet 
doesn't really matter once someone has cancer. And so there's a lot of different opinions out there. And so this is an important um, piece of the research because it's sort of adding to that body that's accumulating now. Uh, I think there are some things that we, we can begin to see. Uh, but like I say, a lot of the questions are left unanswered. Yeah, it's obviously a, a huge space. And um, one that I think is more rapidly evolving in recent years, especially now where stepping away from just looking at cancer as being a genetic disease and really understanding the metabolic nature of cancer. Yeah, and, and I think that's really important, you know, and it's important to recognise various aspects that play into that. You know, it's, it's very easy for, uh, you, know, you know what this is like, you go to a conference and if it's a microbiome conference, it's all about the microbiome. If we go to a metabolic flexibility conference, it's all about metabolism and the metabolic state of the body. Um, if we go to a genetics conference, it's all about genes. And, you know, if we take a step back and look at it pragmatically, we can see that it's all those things and more. You know, genes obviously interplay with environmental factors that interplay with lifestyle, psychosocial factors. Obviously, nutrition and how that affects metabolism is going to affect anything throughout the body. And so I think we really need to keep delving into this to look at the interplay between genes into the epigenome and how our, our nutrition and lifestyle affects that epigenome, affects that expression. And particularly in this case, how our metabolic state and how the fuels we're providing to the body could affect cancer growth and cancer progression. Yeah, it's obviously really multifactorial. And I guess that's, I hope, where people are really starting to look at the new treatment models. Certainly I've um, been following, and I know you do too, the work of Dom Diagostino and at a seminar recently that I went to, it was very much about that multidisciplinary approach of understanding how we treat cancer and, and certainly not, you know, getting rid of, you know, current treatment interventions, but looking at what else we might need to do, seeing as we clearly haven't solved cancer yet. Yeah, we, we need to look at it that way to be truly holistic. You know, there, there are a lot of people in the complementary medicine, complementary health field who would sort of reject a lot of the orthodox treatments. Um, conversely, there'd be a lot of people on the orthodox side who would reject complementary treatments. And we need to understand that we can't do that if we're going to be truly holistic. So we need to approach that idea of holistic medicine through the, the lens of evidence basis, I guess. So what does the evidence tell us now? Uh, where is that research heading? Um, and as practitioners, what can we draw from that to be as effective as we can be and, and as safe as we can be? Um, you know, in the understanding that we're not oncologists, we're not necessarily oncology researchers, you know, we are practitioners trying to do the best we can for, for clients who are at a lot of risk. You know, once they come to us with cancer, uh, often progression is very fast, often survival times are very low. And so we really need to do all that we can do to get the best result while not putting that person at further risk. Mm. Yeah. So really, I mean, in that respect, we're, you know, we're translational. <clears throat> and I, I want to make that clear to the readers as well. Uh, sorry, the listeners as well, that, um, you know, I'm not an oncologist. Uh, I, I haven't done oncological research, but I am a nutrition researcher specifically in the field of ketosis and ketogenesis. And so that obviously crosses over a lot with some of this emerging research around cancer treatment. Uh, I've worked with cancer patients for you know, basically my entire time in practice, which is over 20 years now. 
And um, so I think that puts a somewhat unique, unique spin on it because having the research basis uh, and then the translational aspect of putting that into practice, you, you have to develop a pragmatic approach really because you're really trying to do the best you can uh, while, you know, like I say, minimizing harm. Mm. Yeah, and I think this particular study is quite interesting because they were looking at caloric restriction and the ketogenic diet. And of course, both can be low carbohydrate in nature, so they can be similar in that macronutrient profile. But what what differs obviously in this particular piece of research was the overall calories that were consumed by each group. So can you talk more to that? Yeah, so in this particular study, there was a control group who were eating a sort of standard chow type diet for the um, the, the the mouse and the, the the mice in the study. There was a group that was uh, restricted by forty percent of their calories, so their calories daily calories were reduced by forty percent, and that was predominantly from their carbohydrate uh, intake as well. So in effect, they were on a low carb diet, but it was a calorie restricted one. The other group were not calorie restricted, and they were. Uh, eating a ketogenic diet that consisted of around 90% calories from fat, about 9% from protein, and uh, from memory, about one, well, it would be 1% calories from carbohydrates. So very, very rigid ketogenic-style diet. Um, and it was found that the only one of those diets that inhibited tumor growth to any great degree was the calorie-restricted one. Now, that's not inconsistent with what we know now because – we do have a fairly a fairly good amount of evidence now showing that fasting is, is very effect, effective for cancer treatment and particularly so around um, chemotherapy treatment. Um, it also might have you know that compounding effect with radiotherapy treatment as well. We typically also see that with a ketogenic diet in humans, but if we sort of take it back a step, like I say, this study wasn't inconsistent with what we know now because we know that a calorie restriction works. Um, what I think is interesting from, from this study is it's really starting to, I guess, solidify that approach that many of us take, that it's about reducing total fuel availability to cancer cells. And this is something I've written about quite extensively. This is something I teach uh, when I'm teaching ketogenic nutrition science to my students, is that we need to be aware that cancer cells can become very flexible. And so, for example, certain cancer cells and certain cancer types will become very aggressive in the presence of high ketones. Uh, some can become very aggressive in the presence of high fatty acids. You know, cancer cells can use other fuels as well, like the amino acid glutamine. And so it's a little bit simplistic when people make the case that, well, cancer cells are predominantly glycolytic, or in other words, sugar burning. And therefore, if we reduce carbohydrate in the diet, that's going to effectively starve cancer cells because that may not always be the case. So this study really is, is just providing further evidence for that to some degree. What's probably most interesting to people is that the ketogenic diet, when it wasn't calorie restricted, didn't really have a market effect on, on tumor growth. But then there may well be some other sort of confounding factors within that, and we need to certainly consider those and look at the progression of research from, you know, uh, in, in vitro, you know, in the, in the test tube or in the Petri dish, through to animal in vivo, like this one, where we're looking at animal subjects, 
and then translating that through to what are we seeing in practice and what are we seeing in the human studies that have been done thus far? Yeah. So obviously, um, you know, nearly every cancer is very unique in its progression and mechanisms. So is or has what has happened been that certainly some cancers respond to ketosis because that particular cancer is obviously glycolytic in nature, but perhaps there's been an extrapolation that that could apply to all cancers, which is incorrect. I think that's exactly the case. And, you know, this stems from the idea that cancer is in an absolute sense, just sugar burning. Mm. And that's a, it's not actually the exact theory, but this is the, um, the the Warburg sort of theory, which is that cancer cells are predominantly glycolytic or that cells that are predominantly glycolytic will only use glucose for fuel. And therefore, you know, these cells that aren't, um, or sorry, the, these types of cells can't use other fuels. The Warburg effect, I should say, not the Warburg theory. And, um, that's really been taken to mean that all cancer cells and all cancer types will thrive um, in a glucose-rich environment. And therefore, if we reduce carbohydrate, we're going to get better outcomes. There has been observed, though, and this has been observed in quite a number of studies, something that they call the reverse Warburg effect. And that's the effect whereby when we reduce glucose availability and maybe there's a lot more of another type of fuel, particularly that ketone body, so the ketone body beta-hydroxybutyrate, cancer cells can be flexible. So they can start to use other fuels instead of glucose. And in this case, they'll be using uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate, that main ketone body, as fuel. And so it really depends to some degree on on the cancer cell, um, the the cancer type, Mm -hmm. and the, the person. Because one thing that's certainly clear is that we can't consider cancer just to be one disease. You know, different cancer types are going to have different proclivities towards fuel usage. So some might be predominantly glycolytic. Some might be. Some might have a much greater tendency towards being able to use ketones for fuel. But even within a cancer type, you might have various cells that are more or less glycolytic or ketolytic, and that can occur within the same person as well. So some someone might have cells of a particular type within their body. Some of which are better at using ketones, some of which are worse. And so it does make it quite confusing. And so, you know, the question I often get from my students is, well, which which cancers do which? Yeah, I think that's what everyone wants to know. (laughs) Exactly. And I I don't think we can necessarily answer that question right now, mainly because there just hasn't been enough research. There have been studies, for example, that compare, um, you know, certain types of breast cancer like the Henrietta Lacks, uh, sorry, that was an ovarian cancer, wasn't it? The Henrietta Lacks line of, of cancer cells, which can be quite good at using ketones, um, comparing those to human pancreatic cancer cells that are somewhat resistant to that and are much more glycolytic. Uh, and in terms of brain cancers, which we typically tend to think as a, a prime target for ketone therapy or ketogenic diets, glioblastoma uh, is typically in the research that I've seen at least tends to be fairly glycolytic and not so ketolytic. In other words, it's a good, you know, sugar burning type target. Whereas anaplastic astrocytoma, another type of brain cancer might be quite different with respect to that as well. But again, if we're looking at the individual cells that have been assayed, they can have quite different responses as well. 
So again, we're left with a, a bit of confusion because we might have some indication from the type of cancer and that might guide us as clinicians to, to change up the nutritional strategy a little bit. But can we actually be that confident that what we're doing will not drive some cancer growth, right? So this is why I began quite a few years ago to really look at this idea of total fuel availability and then to try and put that in the context of the research as it stands. So what that basically means is a lot of people are chasing ketones, mm. right? We have, we have cancer. People think, well, we want to starve it of glucose, so therefore we should go on a ketogenic diet and we should try and get our ketones really high and our blood glucose down to basically as low as it can be within that low normal range. In other words, have a really high ketone to glucose index. And I don't necessarily agree with that because we can see in the research that when we flood certain cells with ketones, they become good at using them. And so I sort of look at that as being, why would we boost a fuel as high as we could possibly get it when there is potential that cancer cells can basically morph to be able to use that? It makes more sense to have the least amount of fuel that we need in order to thrive. And that comes from a, a range of different sources. So I often do use a ketogenic approach with my cancer patients, but it's certainly not one in which we chase higher and higher levels of ketones. It's one in which we have enough fuel and enough fuel availability for the person to, to feel good, to have a proper, uh, properly functioning immune system, um, to try and you know, reduce inflammatory damage, to try and uh, reduce excessive oxidation and excess glycation from a diet that's too high in carbohydrate and sugar, but not so much that it's potentially going to drive that flexibility, hopefully. So we're really taking a more, I guess, prudent approach where we're looking at the, the best course that is the safest because it reduces the amount of fuel that's available to drive that growth of tumors. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Like until we know that a particular cancer isn't then going to feed on ketones, you can't possibly be running the risk that you're perpetuating the problem. Like it's really dangerous without that clear knowledge, that clear literature. Yeah. Absolutely. I think so. And, you know, there may be some application that's discovered where we really do want to drive high ketone levels. And, you know, we might insert in other illnesses think that that's already the case, you know, for epilepsy and seizure control and things like that, there is a really good case for having higher ketone levels than what, you know, someone else might require just to feel good and to, to have enough fuel to function. In this case, though, we always need to marry up what could be with what we know now and try and take the, the safest course. Um, because when we're not doing that, it becomes very cavalier and we simply don't know whether we're driving negative outcomes. So I think we need to be really clear about that. And so, you know, I've been quite vocal about that idea that, you know, at this stage, based on the evidence, it does seem that on balance, ketogenic diets tend to have performed really well in the, in the human research so far. They, they tend to be tolerated well. Um, they tend to have very good compliance, you know, and, and particularly people who have metabolic disorders, insulin resistance, prediabetes, things like that, who are at much greater risk of cancer. They tend to adhere to low carbon ketogenic diets better anyway. So 
It doesn't necessarily mean the strictest ketogenic diets, but a low-carb or keto diet approach of some sort, people typically comply with better. Like I say, they're safe, they're tolerated well, and we do see an indication towards there being better survival times. But we wouldn't want to sort of subvert, subvert those great results by just arbitrarily trying to push people as deep into ketosis as we can if there's potential there for driving cancer growth, because it's probably just unnecessary at best and might be, you know, really negative at worst. And so there is a real um, sort of common approach that is probably safe, um, that, that seems to be effective, and that is probably giving us the best results while not sort of pushing people to a place they don't want to be. Yeah. So then with the caloric restriction model, um, the mechanisms are obviously a little bit different, even though we're still seeing the low glucose and low insulin levels. So in this particular study, how did that differ if we're looking at caloric restriction versus ketogenic or low carb? I think overall it was still about total fuel availability. So there was a lower level of glucose just through, uh, particularly in the um, the fluid surrounding the tumours. So not necessarily in the bloodstream, but the fluid surrounding the, the tumours. There was lower glucose than in the ketogenic diet because in a ketogenic diet that's replete with calories, you know, lots of calories, there's still going to be that potential there for um, there to be greater fuel availability, including from glucose. When we're calorie restricted, you know, we're just going to have lower total fuel availability overall, which is really the goal with cancer treatment. So what that would then lead people to think, and we need to be cautious about this as well, perhaps for the best results, we just want to be calorie restricted. The problem with that as a sort of medium to long-term approach is, you know, as we well know, one of the biggest risks with cancer is the cachexia muscle wasting. And if we're calorie restricted for too long and we begin to basically waste away, that's not going to lead to the best long-term outcomes. So it's one of those interesting things where calorie restriction and fasting is probably really beneficial for the treatment of cancer based on what we can see in the research now. But obviously people just can't starve themselves forever. You know, there needs to be some sort of progression back. And I think within that context, that's where we need to be a little bit cleverer, I guess, around how we reduce the total fuel availability to those cancer cells, return people to closer to normal calorie levels, and still basically get similar results. So maybe we still use, for example, fasting around chemo treatment. Maybe we use intermittent fasting. Uh, Maybe we use lower carbon ketogenic approaches. Uh, And what we also need to consider within that is we need to take these results and look at the, the context that they were applied. The first context really is that they're applied in mice and mice are typically not great responders to a ketogenic diet. So they have some challenges, you know, increased rates of gluconeogenesis and things like that, which we don't see to the same degree in humans because humans are pretty well adapted to, to being in ketosis. Uh, we also need to look outside of that at the the psychosocial and behavioral aspects of diet that really affect the, the human specifically. And I mentioned one of them, which was you know adherence and compliance, where a lot of people actually adhere and comply better to low-carb approaches. But we also need to consider that 
if energy balance is critically important for cancer treatment, as it is, then which diets help to promote the greatest satiety and the greatest energy balancing, or in some respects, calorie restriction without people having to force it? Because that's the, that's the kind of diet they can stick to. And we know from the research that typically those are slightly higher in protein or, or much higher in protein. They are typically lower carb or low carb. And the ketogenic diet has a particularly good effect on that. So especially when there's enough protein in a ketogenic diet, it's incredibly satiating. And so that allows people to auto-regulate their energy more effectively, and therefore they're less likely to overeat. Overeating, taking in too much energy full stop, is probably the worst situation for cancer. And so in, in order to have the appropriate energy balance, appropriate levels of protein to help reduce that muscle wasting, but still get the effects of basically not overfueling, there is still, I think, a, a good functional rationale for applying low-carb or ketogenic approaches if they're done soundly and safely and sensibly. In other words, not chasing ketones. Mm, it makes a lot of sense. I'd hate to be doing caloric restriction with high carbs. <laughs> that would be miserable. Yeah, exa- <laughs> exactly. And one of the um, interesting things is because there has been some you know, pretty promising research around the ketogenic diet for cancer, particularly in humans. A lot of people have assumed that they they do need to chase those ketones. They need to have ketones that are really high. And you and I know that in order to, to, to do that, we would typically need to eat quite a lot. We'd need to eat quite a lot of fat in particular. And we need to keep our carbohydrate extremely low and our protein pretty low as well. Now, that may not be driving the best outcomes for a number of reasons. Number one, if you're just loading up on fat in order to try and get greater ketones, you're just providing greater amounts of fuel to to the body full stop and to cancer cells. We know that cancer cells can use ketones and we know that various cancer cells can also use fatty acids very efficiently as fuel. And so it's not going to necessarily be the, the best situation. Number two, with very low protein intakes, we typically see increases in cachexia and muscle wasting. Mm -hmm. So that's obviously not good for long-term survival anyway. But one thing that I've often considered is, do we really know the implications of that? We often talk in the setting of cancer treatment as well about things like, you know, glutamine can be used by cancer cells. And some people have taken that to mean, well, I don't want to eat too much protein because there's glutamine within those protein chains, so there's glutamine coming from protein foods, and I don't want to fuel cancer. But given that muscle is the biggest pool of glutamine in the body, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me either to have a large amount of muscle wasting in which you're freeing up glutamine, which can be used by cancer cells. So actually getting sufficient protein, even if there is a bit of glutamine there, if it's supporting the retention of muscle, to me, that seems like a good double whammy because you're reducing cachexia and all the negative effects that that has on long-term survival. Plus, potentially, you're actually reducing the fuel fuel availability to those cancer cells by having enough protein. Thirdly, if we're drastically trying to reduce carbohydrate to, to basically zero, like it was in the study on mice, it leaves almost no opportunity to have foods that we know to have an association with reduced cancer rates and uh, reducing cancer progression, improve recovery from cancer, like all those you know, richly colored polyphenols and anthocyanins and all the various cool phytochemicals we get from plants, right? 
um, because people are trying to limit those as well to get as little carbohydrate as possible. And I think that's probably detrimental. You know, we can achieve a very good, healthy, low carb or keto style diet while still having enough protein and while having plenty of vegetables and also not drastically overloading with fat just purely so we can get higher and higher levels of ketones. So there's a number of reasons why, you know, we can modify the approach to make it a healthier one overall, which is likely to give us the best outcomes. Yeah, crystal clear. I um, am curious. I hope so. <laughs> to me, it just it's not to everyone, obviously. That's why people are still trying to chase ketones or go vegan or whatever the, you know, self belief is around. Yeah, the ideal treatment. <laughs> yeah, and you know, we also need to consider, and this is something that I, I grapple with a lot as a practitioner. You know, I work with. Uh, cancer patients, a lot of my cancer patients are terminal, have you know been given very short survival expectations by the time they come to see me. And you know a, a lot of them do really well. Some of them unfortunately don't, and some of them you know will pass away, and it's a very difficult thing to work with as a practitioner. But I think I always need to step back and put on almost my sort of objective researcher's hat and say, well, you know we can only do our best. And we can do our best based on the research. We can translate it into practice. And then whether we have a, a good or a bad outcome, we also need to consider that that may or may not have been a, as a result of what we did. You know, there are so many other factors going on, you know, with respect to the environment and, you know, environmental pollutants and the effect of stress and media and sleep. Uh, whether people can adhere to diet, you know, whether they're just very genetically predisposed to a particular thing, um, you know, whether there are other factors that have helped with the mutation of genes and things. There's so many other factors going on that we need to um, have a reality check, you know, which is why I, I'm, I'm very averse when people say, oh, I cured this or I helped someone cure this because we simply don't know. Again, if we knew, we would have solved cancer. And this has been going on, like you mentioned, the Warburg effect. Like that was first identified in the 1920s. Like that's that's 100 years ago. Like if we knew what we were doing with cancer, you know, we wouldn't have the problem that we've got in 2020. We knew the solution. Exactly. And and I think that really does speak to the multifactorial nature of this. You know, there, there have been... For a long time now, um, it, you know, prospective vaccines against um, oncoviruses. There, there have been uh, prospective measures that have been looked at to to alter gene expression and all sorts of things. But none of those, to my knowledge, have been that effective to this point because there are simply so many things going on, and that the human organism is so complex, and all the influences that are upon that organism, both within and without, are, are very complex as well. And so, yeah, it's, it's a difficult thing, and we just need to simply do the best that we can with the tools that we have uh, to try and basically, you know, do the best job based on the research. But also, of course, you know, we, we need to start this process before people actually have illness. You know, we really need to be working towards better environments, better food environments, better psychosocial environments that allow people to thrive and be as healthy as they can because then they'll be more resilient to all these other factors that could predispose them to illness. So in this study, what is the significance of the 40% reduction in calories? And, and do we know 
what percentage is ideal at this point in time? In short, I don't think we do. Um, Because with calorie restriction, I think in this particular study, they withdrew uh, a large amount of calories in order to get a, you know, a decent effect size. And I'm not exactly sure, you know, I'd have to read into the methods and things as to why they, they did that. I don't think it's even mentioned in the paper as to why they chose that particular level. If it is, um, I apologize, but I didn't read that. Um, but with calorie restriction, it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting topic because for a lot of outcomes related to restriction, energy restriction, to some degree, you would say, well, the, the, the more, the better. You know, I'm oversimplifying, but if we're looking at reducing fuel availability, then it makes sense that the greater the better. But as I mentioned before, we can't simply not eat, you know, because then there are going to be other ramifications that come in that are going to be far more devastating. So in terms of finding a a calorie restriction that works, I, I don't think we know where my translational side comes in and where I start to think about, well, you know, what seems to be the most prudent right now. I think that where we have clients who are excessively adipose, right? That's a nerdy way of saying they hold too much body fat at the moment. Where people hold too much body fat and they have problems with maybe um, insulin resistance and that, that diabetic picture of having too much body fat then I think returning people to normal body weights, um, I'm, I'm saying normal in the statistical sense of being at the norm, um, you know, normal body weights and appropriate levels of body fat, I think that makes sense. And if we have to calorie restrict a, a lot to do that, I think that's fine, particularly where people are taking in enough protein to properly offset muscle loss. But once people are down to a, a sort of fairly normal body weight with appropriate levels of body fat, it's quite cavalier to then try and continue to drastically calorie restrict because at that point we're starting to get all those other things going on, like increased levels of muscle wasting. And and that's quite common. You know, I have a lot of patients who have got to that point where they are quite, you know, quite lean and they can't really afford to lose any more body fat. And so then it does become that balancing act of trying to provide enough fuel, but not overfueling while being replete with all the other things. And we don't want to forget about those, the micronutrients, getting enough essential vitamins and minerals, plus all those secondary nutrients we get from nutrient-dense foods that are probably uh, anti-cancer in some form as well. So it sounds to me that we might be able to start a little bit more drastic, for want of a better word, but then you know, really scale that percentage of caloric restriction relative to the individual and certainly their level of body fat at the time of intervention. I would say so. And I think, you know, we certainly have enough indicative research to show that fasting is very effective for that as well. And so even complete abstinence from food can, you know, help at certain times. Uh, And I think it's probably clear enough now that the evidence um, is there that fasting, particularly around chemotherapy treatments is, is very effective too. Hmm. Yeah, so again, it's clear why we don't have a set answer because it's going to be really individual. Um, I'm curious, though, I'd, you know, hopefully this study, I'm sure it has, has prompted a lot more research around, yeah, exactly 
how much when we're talking about caloric restriction or if it is just completely going to be a case-by-case scenario. Absolutely. You know, I, I think that's really important for, for people to consider because what we need to also remember within the treatment of anybody is that their presenting complaint is not the only thing, right? And you know this as a practitioner, you know. It's not just about the fact that someone's presenting with a particular type of, well, first of all, that someone's presenting with cancer. You know, what cancer are they presenting with? What research do we have on that? But more importantly even, what else is going on? Does the person have other conditions? Do they have insulin resistance? Are they maybe holding excessive body fat tissue on the body, which is not going to be conducive to their recovery? All these very things, all these various other things need to be considered as well, because it's not only about what the person's presenting with, it's what the person is and how they are, you know, how they live in their environment. All those various things are very important as well. And so absolutely, it needs to be on, on a case-by-case basis. Um, I remember a, a discussion I had with Dr. Eric Helms, not about this specifically, but about the idea of sort of best practice guidelines. And despite the fact that a lot of best practice guidelines are probably not evidence-based at this point, still, if we have a general idea, you know, amongst us as practitioners and researchers that there's a best, a, you know, purportedly best way to go about treating a particular condition, we need to remember that that is the mean. In other words, that's the average of what works best overall. But for any one person, they're not at the mean. And so we, we can start with an idea, which is the best practice guideline, but we need to almost shift immediately from that to meet the needs of the individual. So, you know, people who are applying almost cookie cutter approaches whereby it's the same for everybody, it's simply not going to give the best results. Yeah. Yeah. I can definitely see how we're getting into some issues with, yeah, trying to treat it like, <laughs> like it's not a confusing disease because it's obviously one of the most challenging ones to understand. And, and um, there are so many nuances within even the word cancer. And then of course, within the patient. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, a, a lot of on the face assumptions, you know, if for example, a ketogenic diet has some application for cancer, then you'll see a lot of people jumping on that and saying, well, then surely dietary, oh, sorry, exogenous ketones have application for cancer. And they might, I'm not sure, but the reasons where they might or the cases in which they might are probably quite distinct. You know, they're probably very, again, individualized. Why am I saying that? Well, again, we go back to that point that we wouldn't necessarily just want to add a whole bunch of extra fuel because that might fuel certain cancer cells to grow. Mm -hmm. And so exogenous ketones are, you know, potentially problematic. However, what we've observed a lot in clinical practice is that when people take exogenous ketones, they are often extremely satiated to the point where some of our clients, we, we advise them not to take them because they're habitual under eaters and they end up not eating enough when they take exogenous ketones. So what I'm getting at here is on a case-by-case basis, if someone was a habitual overeater and they took some ketones, which didn't you know, drastically elevate their ketone levels, let's say they got up to one millimole or so, that's probably fine. 
but that also helped them to auto-regulate their energy intake. In other words, it helped stop them from overeating. Then that could be a really beneficial thing for that individual. But we would need to look at it on an individual basis. And we certainly can't have a whole bunch of people out there who aren't qualified and aren't registered practitioners and all the various other caveats we have just saying, oh, you've got cancer, take ketones. Because it's just, you know, it's way too simplistic. And we're, we're almost trying to treat, you know, one particular thing like a magic bullet that's going to cure the world's ails. And we know that's not the case. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the last thing I wanted to get your thoughts on is if we know there are lots of different interventions that could be quite positive, but might have their negatives, like you say, like fasting leading to muscle loss or caloric restriction not being sustainable in the long term, then what are your thoughts on like that press pulse concept where the future directions look like we might do, you know, periods of intervention and then a change so that we can, you know, I guess prevent or mitigate some of those side effects. Does that make sense? It does. Um, I, I agree with that with some limitations, I think. Mm-hmm. I think before we get to that point, and I'm going to sound way oversimplistic here, but I, I think it's important sometimes to try and take these, you know, overarching complex concepts and try and at least get some traction on the ground. I think before we start to look at the, the really clever ways that we could alter diet to get the best outcome, we also need to understand that the commonalities between nutrition for any illness, including cancer, are probably quite clear even at this point. And that's that we want to start with a diet that is based on, you know, more natural, unrefined foods, nutrient dense, you know, replete in all those nutrients that we require. That's incredibly important. And I know that, you know, someone like you understands that, but I I think you and I would both be surprised at the amount of even practitioners who don't always put that at the forefront because it's very easy to start to go down the rabbit hole to think about what can I manipulate, you know, rather than what's the foundation. Once the foundation's set, I completely agree. There could be times where we're applying things more or less rigidly. Um, There's certainly, I think, a, a really good foundation for using that approach uh, around treatment times. And like I've already mentioned a few times, I think that the the evidence is becoming quite clear that fasting around chemo, for example, is, is a really good idea. But of course, if someone's having repeated chemo treatments and they're practically fasting all the time, that's not going to work either. So there does need to be an application of different things at different times, maybe fasting for a little while, and then maybe the calories are a little bit higher um, obviously, it depends on what the person can afford to to lose in terms of their own body weight, body fat levels. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I think there is a really good application for that. It just needs to, again, be individualized, but always on a foundation of doing the biggest things first. Um, and I'd also include, I know I'm getting a little bit tangential here, but I'd also include in those foundations real attention to some of the other things that we know can drive negative effects or can drive maybe even, you know, genetic mutation and things. That's lifestyle stuff from getting enough sun, not too much from getting enough sleep, making it sure it's good quality, you know, from reducing our stress, from reducing our exposure to, to screens, aggressive media, 
um, you know, excessive use of social media, all those types of things have a negative effect on health. And so we want to take care of all those foundations because they're the big things first. Yeah. I love it. I think uh, we often try to build a house from the roof and we forget about those foundations. So really important that we do start with those. And I just look forward to seeing, you know, what we can learn over the coming years, because certainly I think the direction of the cancer research is looking quite positive. Whereas before it was really polarizing, you know, it was genetic, there was a genetic camp or there was a metabolic camp and it was like, that's it. (laughs) Whereas now, like you said earlier, we're looking at this more combination holistic view. And I love that. And I think that's really exciting to see. Yeah. What happens in coming years? I agree. And, and, you know, in my experience, although there are you know holdouts who are not necessarily looking wider than just their particular little scope, uh, I think overall we're starting to see much more integration. You know, we're starting to see people talking cross modality or, or cross faculty at universities, and really starting to look at how we can get the best results by integrating these things. You know, true integrative medicine, not necessarily the the weird and wacky quacky side of it, but the the truly holistic, but truly evidence-based integrative medicine, I think is actually becoming very strong. Um, We have some very good organizations that are pushing towards that. Uh, You know, I I gave a talk a few years back at the um, ACNAM Cancer Symposium in Wellington. And this is where I I first aired to a, a group of probably 200 doctors and oncologists, these views that I had on the ketogenic diet, but how we can apply it best you know, and, and why we don't, for example, need to drastically reduce protein intakes in our cancer patients and all these various ideas now that have started to sort of drift out into the mainstream. Um, and so because of that, I think we're really starting to get better interventions because, again, I'm, I'm going a bit tangential, but I remember years ago reading a position statement um, in which a group, and I can't remember who it was, whether I'd even be able to find it, I'm not sure, but it basically said that nutrition played almost no role in the progression of cancer. And then we had another paper coming out shortly afterwards that said that in reality, our best practice nutritional interventions for cancer had probably worsened outcomes for people because at the time, and we're only going back here about 10 years, a lot of the advice that people were getting once they had cancer was simply make sure you eat enough because you're going to lose your appetite and you need to hold your body weight. You need to hold your muscle. But there was no priority given to the quality of food. Quality, yeah. Yeah. And so people were told to eat just high calorie food. So I remember seeing cancer patients who had been told, you know what, you've just got to drink milkshakes and you've got to eat ice cream and all this kind of stuff because it's high in calories. It's going to help you hold the weight. But we all know now that in conjunction with the genetic picture and the epigenomic effects you know, sort of spreading out from that. Obviously, the metabolic aspect is critically important. If we're overfueling cells full stop, they grow, you know, particularly very aggressive cell types like cancer, which love to grow, love to proliferate, um, you know, far more so than our, our standard differentiated cell types, which are the normal cell types of the body. So, you know, they're going to basically be gobbling up all that extra nutrition and, and going for it. Yeah, I'm I'm certainly glad that your thoughts were, you know, I guess delivered to those people that need to hear it the most who we can then start to change the way cancer is treated across the globe. I mean, 
it's, yeah, again, really exciting times. You're so good at taking a research paper, which would be quite confusing for some people to read and pulling out, you know, the key learnings and, and hopefully then that will, you know, redirect the broader view of cancer treatment. So thank you so much for your time again today. It's always a pleasure, Steve. I've loved this conversation. So I'll pop the study link in the show notes for those that want to check it out and certainly um, dive into the methods and more. And then just finally, Cliff, where can we find you online? Uh, Best place to find me and all that I do is at cliffharvey.com. And that's where you can find links to all my social and my other businesses, including the Holistic Performance Institute where I do my teaching. Um, But people can also find that at holisticperformance.institute. Awesome. Thank you again. I look forward to our next discussion and we'll talk to you very soon. Awesome. Thanks, Steph. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Real. This has been a production of TheWellnessCouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on Facebook.com forward slash TheWellnessCouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.